The Psychedologist. Greetings. Welcome to The Psychedologist. Thank you for tuning in. This is a great episode, a recording of a talk by Brother Dooley, a.k.a. Abdul Wilkins, a.k.a. the Beantown Ghetto Shaman, who so graciously joined us in Boston Entheogenic Network with his stories and his wisdom and his humor and his rapé. He is an excellent healer and teacher and a carrier of stories and myths and truths and just a really captivating person to listen to with an amazing story. So we had an event. It was called Psychedelics, Trauma, and Identity. And I invited Dooley to speak um, because I thought we could hear from a speaker and then we could break into small groups and talk about trauma. This was inspired by the trauma conference going on in Boston, International Trauma Conference, and all the experts were there. And of course, the psychedelic superstars were there. I know Rick Doblin spoke there. My friend Shannon from MAPS gave a talk and had a few other acquaintances attending the conference. But it came to mind something that Will Sue said in the psychedelics race and, uh, sorry, psychedelics, people of color and therapy talk. I'd been to a month before about, you know, are we healing people in these MDMA therapy sessions and then sending them back into the very conditions within which they were first traumatized? And that could relate to any sort of hostile environment, um, a place where someone's not safe or there's uh, potential sexual harassment or assault or there's racism, there's microaggressions, you know, whatever it is, how can we take care of people outside of the therapy, outside of and beyond the therapy session, I think it starts with engaging with our local community and figuring out ways to curb and end these cycles of trauma that we find ourselves um, going around in. So I organized the event and Dooley came and he taught us about dealing with trauma through sacred teaching plants and fungi. And he also talks about growing up in Boston, realizing he was not in the safest environment. He lived between two warring projects, and he'll tell you about this. He saw violence firsthand amongst friends. Um, at the same time, though, his relatives were teaching him about healing and martial arts. He learned all these unique expressions of spirituality he found other teachers, and now he himself is a teacher and a healer. So his story is quite engaging and really, really amazing and un unbelievable at times. So I hope you enjoy it. One thing I wanted to explain that um, some people may not be familiar with is toward the beginning of the talk, he does rape or hape or um, hapi, I think he's calling it. There are different pronunciations um, I've spoken about rapé in the on the show before, <clears throat> particularly because it's had a big effect on me in my spiritual practice. The origins of this tradition are in the Amazon basin. Rapé is a finely ground powder of tobacco and ashes of tree bark, often different trees. So it's this really, really fine, fluffy powder, and. Um, Traditionally, a shaman or um, maestro, curandero, curandera will um, put the rape, this powder, into a hollow tube, a bone or a bamboo, and they'll place one end of the tube 
outside of your nostril and they'll they'll bless the rape first and there's you know this like intention and connection and so they place it just outside of your nostril the other end they bring to their lips and then they send a prayer through the tube and a and with this pressure of air the powder flies into your nasal cavity and just completely destroys your mind. I mean, your eyes water, um, some people like cough, sneeze, like, um, and, you know, there's mucous membranes up, up there in the nose. So it's essentially the body is getting nicotine, but without the burning of the tobacco, the way that you'd get nicotine through smoking it. Um, because I just a little, little bit of biochemistry here. Um, there are all different ways to separate the plant from its, um, psychoactive constituents, like take THC, for example, you may have used marijuana or cannabis before. So you can smoke it, you're burning the plant and you're causing the THC and all these other um, cannabinoids and other molecules to separate from the, the plant material, you know, which is like cytokines and all these like the cells of the plant. And then you're, you're taking that in and it's coming in through the lungs and pr- probably attaching in other places too. Another way to consume THC, though, is to eat it. So if you have a, a butter or an oil that has THC in it, that's probably because the raw plant material, like the buds, were put into oil and heated to the extent that the THC and other cannabinoids broke off from the plant material, went into the fat. They, they like to cling on to fat of the oil. And then you eat the oil and it's the burning that happens in your stomach through the fire of our digestion that causes the THC to be released from the oil and then to take residence in um, the outer lining, the inner lining of our stomach. That is my very elementary understanding of how it works. And um, ultimately what I'm trying to illustrate is that there are different processes by which um, molecules can pass through and enter our system, right? In the case of tobacco, there's smoking of tobacco, um, but you can also use tobacco as like a snuff, right? Or no, not snuff, sorry, dip, right? You can put it in under your tongue or into the front of your lip. So there's these different ways for us to have things pass through our system. Um, in the case of rape, the tobacco is going into the nose and you can really experience if you will, the teachings of this plant, right? Because plants give us a sort of physiological reaction when we, quote, take them or we work with them in different ways. There's some way that they're acting on us. Even a kale, uh, a leaf of kale is having an action on you because there's a particular arrangement of nutrients and molecules and we our system breaks that down and we take some of those in and they become us, they nourish us and become our body. This is just science, okay? So with rape, we uh, a, a person being served rape gets this quite a feeling. For me, it feels like really deep, heavy roots coming out of you know the the bottom part of me, going down into the earth, like a very grounded pull of gravity and energy down. But then also this upward energy, like whew, like up into the heavens. Um, 
a lightness, a floating. So it's like being stretched almost, but not painfully. It's Although it can be uncomfortable because it can be intense, it's quite amazing because for me, it feels like becoming the earth, just completely surrendering my body and becoming part of the landscape, but also floating and vaporizing into air, essentially. So hard to really capture in words, but Whatever perspective you ascribe to on what's going on when we smoke something, take something, drink, eat, have a shaman shoot it into your nose, there's a teaching experience going on. And whether that's a teaching of your consciousness being altered by this chemical reaction and that changing the way that you think and feel, or the spirit and the wisdom of this plant coming into you and bringing a a wisdom or a message or reflecting to you something about yourself or some truth about reality or an energetic interaction. There are lots of different explanations for this. And I'd like to emphasize that in the tradition that this practice comes from, in the indigenous tradition of using tobacco and regarding tobacco as sacred, I do believe that no matter if you're on the hard science end or you're like, whatever the opposite of that is, like the hard woo-woo. I don't think those two words really go together, but this plant is a teacher and it does help us learn about, it helps me learn about myself and about other plants by the effect that takes place when I experience this plant, when I work with it. So he takes some rape, hape at the beginning. And then after the talk, he offered it to anyone who wanted it. So I got to watch about 10 of my comrades get the Royal Rape treatment for the first time. Nothing like seeing someone get that for the first time. We had to bring in about a whole roll of toilet paper because, you know, after you're, you've sat with it for a couple minutes, you have to blow your nose. And so there's all the, the Rape blows coming out. Some people know what I mean here. So that's what is coming up for you today. Uh, in this episode. I want to also give an announcement about what to expect from the psychedologist this summer. One of those is Psychedelic Summer School. Don't you want to go? I got this idea because people email me a lot asking questions about psychedelics. And while I do respond to them personally and direct them in the way of uh, different teaching tools, I want people to have access to like kind of simple, quick and dirty lessons on this topic or that topic in psychedelics. So these will be coming out once a week, and I'm still going to release conversations about every other week is the um, the goal on that. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But with Psychedelic Summer School, we'll have an episode on intention setting and then substances and spaces, like kind of... Um, an overview of different common psychedelics and different places where they might be taken. Uh, And then maybe we'll talk about holding space. What does holding space mean? A conversation about that. So it's just like a 101. Okay, psychedelics 101, psychedelic summer school. And I'm going to have different guests on to riff with me about these topics. And yeah, we're basically coming up with the informal curriculum now. And it's it's by no means exhaustive. It's just... um, a little thing to wet your whistle, if you will. And the other thing that you can look forward to is starting with the next episode coming out, <clears throat> which is 
a conversation between myself and Joe Moore from Psychedelics Today, a great friend. I'm going to be featuring a little who's who in psychedelics, a little portion of every episode where I tell you a thing or two about someone who you probably maybe haven't heard of, but who is badass and doing something great and has done something great and offers um, offers this movement or these movements, um, the psychedelic movement, something special and unique. So a little bio about them, maybe a quote, maybe you know, what they're bringing, what they're doing, and a celebration of those people. So without further delay, tune in your ears, put on your listening caps or Keep your eyes on the road, wash those dishes, fold the clothes, take a deep breath. Let it go. This is Brother Dooley. I'm going to start off with a little rapi myself, but um, if anybody wants some, I have some extra soup, you know, if anyone wants to take part. And, um, for anybody, has anybody heard of Rappi before? Of another Rappi? Yeah. So for those who haven't heard of it before, I'll explain a little afterwards, okay? But I'm going to do that. Um, I'm going to do a little singing bowl action. And uh, just to keep the frequency high, just like we used to spread in the power sample and stuff, it's important, um, in my opinion, to keep vibration high, especially when we're talking about such things that we're talking about today. You know, so it's a very sacred experience. Thank you. And with the, it's usually R-A-P-E, with a little apostrophe thing on there, no, Rapi. But some people call it, it's usually pronounced as Rapi. It's how you can go. And um, I'll just briefly talk about it since, you know, since I'm going to do it right now. But uh, it really cleans out your lungs. It, it, it brings up a lot of mucus out of your system. Um, hoppy is really good. Um, traditionally, it was very used in the Amazon for hunting and being able to go and be able to increase one's vision, you know, to be able to help with one's smell and, and all these things that have more endurance, more stamina. So uh, a lot of these, some of these uh, medicines in the jungle, in the Amazon, they actually were used in, in its earliest format to be able to help you know, people be able to hunt to get food better, different things like that. Um, but also on a spiritual level, it really helps out one's work field. You know, I did a, <clears throat> I have a good friend of mine, his name is Yoga Mike. Um, he's a great man. He does uh, yoga certifications within the inner city of Boston, and he's striving to get more people of color involved in yoga. So we had, we had our own little uh, hoppy uh, ceremony that day. And uh, there was one woman there. She's like, she was an older woman, and um, it was so funny because she was like, "This is this is more intense than giving birth," you know. And uh, you know, <laughs> my friend Essay was there, and it was something. And one by one, you seen them all lay down, and it it brings a real relaxing feeling as well. So, hoppy uh, is usually a, a combination of tobacco and um, powdered um, you know, treat, you know certain trees that they, they powder down into ash and, and combine. But uh, uh, tobacco has always been 
a medicine used by a lot of Native peoples for many different reasons. Um, again, sometime in ceremony, uh, particularly with the Shabibo people in Peru, they will use a lot of uh, tobacco to help um, ground people and actually help um, protect people during ceremony, you know? So if, you know, in ceremony sometimes, I don't know, I'm not assuming everyone has taken ayahuasca or taken certain things, but when you're in an ayahuasca ceremony, sometimes some people go and have very um, challenging moments in their journey. And sometimes they just use the tobacco to blow the auric field or to be able to, to strengthen your auric field. So this is what the Hopi as, as well does. It, it clears. They had one woman that was at the yoga uh, thing where I was talking that day, and um, she she took the Hopi, and she's an acupuncturist. And she she is something called the um, microcosmic orbit within Chinese medicine. And um, she's like, Julie, she's like, look at this. It's opening up this particular meridian. And it was she was breaking the whole thing down of how, through her experience, the hobby really opens up the chakra system, which is in, in the Hindu um, science, you know, and also it, it clears out the meridian system when we deal with Chinese medicine. So, again, whoever wants some, feel free. Um, it's very intense. I consider it a very masculine, like tobacco being a very masculine any, um, medicine. You know, you have certain medicines that are masculine and others that are more feminine. And when you deal with something like, um, for instance, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, my father, and I'll give you a little background about myself in a second, but my father taught me a lot about these different paths when I was a young boy. And he taught us about Ayurvedic medicine. And in Ayurvedic medicine, you learn about, like in Chinese medicine, what type of body type, what's your constitution, all right? So you might have someone who has a very fiery type of nature, right? And then you might have someone who's in, who has a nature that's more cooling, you know? And so you have to find in, in this type of way of health and approaching health, they say you have to know your body type, you know? And when you know your body type, you can even know that, take that knowledge and apply it to even the teaching plants and the fungi or the psychedelics. And you could do your study and start to see which type of psychedelics are more masculine and do you need more of that energy in your life or which ones are more feminine, which do you need more of that yin energy in your life. So, for instance, like San Pedro, you know, San Pedro cactus, that's a more hot chakra centered um, medicine, you know, that's much more yin, that's more goddess energy. So if somebody is very fiery, they might need some of that cooling energy to balance them out, you see? So there's a lot of soldiers sometimes that deal with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they use San Pedro with these um, soldiers all the time, and it helps them out, helps cool a lot of that anger and that some of that pain, you know? So it was a gentleman who I talked to in, um, at UMass Amherst one day, and I was doing a, a talk over there, and uh, these are so many years ago. He fought in the Iraq war. And uh, this guy, he couldn't go to sleep. He was, you know, trying to adapt to civilian life like a lot of soldiers, you know, coming back home. And uh, nightmares every night, you know. And uh, he dealt with the ayahuasca. And I remember he says, do we, you know, he had a good talk. He said, like, I could sleep for the first time in my life, you know. 
I was able to deal with some of some of the demons, you know, and that's what we're going to talk about today is the trauma, dealing with a lot of these things. So, again, ayahuasca is a very feminine type of medicine. You know, a lot of people call that the ancient grandma, you know, compared to like iboga or some psilocybin mushroom, which some people would say that's more masculine. Come in and kick your ass, you know. Mm. <laughs> like you know, mm. no, no, just I'm not saying ayahuasca won't do that too. But I think she comes in and and, and kind of mm. rocks you, you know, holds you a little bit before mm. she kicks your ass. <laughs> so you after. know, yeah, after you know, so so you know, I don't want to be stereotypical and be like, okay, feminine energy is oh, nicey, nicey, you know, you know, you know, no, there's you know, if people are into studying different um, archetypes around the world with the goddess energy. You understand the goddess has many faces, you know? Mm. She has many faces. So you, for mm-hmm. instance, you might have in, in Egypt, you might have, or Kemet, the proper name, or Taneri, they, they, they would have the goddess, for instance, uh, Sekhmet, mm. which is a very raffle, you know, when you want to get something done, mm-hmm. you know, she, she, that's the energy of kick ass, all right? But the flip side to her, is she's Hawthorne. Mm. So she has this other side to us, which is very nurturing, very caring, very loving. So you, the goddess, she has all these different types of natures and, and different masks and different ways about her, you know? So we can't just have this very patriarchal type of view towards goddess energy and say, oh, just nicey, nicey. <laughs> so let's take this a little first right here. <clears throat> And again, if anybody would like to, and Rappi, by the Hoppy is legal, by the way. We're not doing anything illegal in here. And, um, you know, just for, there might be viewers that they're like, okay, what are they snorting or what's going on here? You know, so I just want to make sure that's, that's uh, you know, established. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, and um, it's intense. So, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see it cleansing out your system. And usually I do uh, a Kung Fu type of... So if you see me do some Kung Fu type of movements all of a sudden or some <laughs> spontaneous dance, that's my way of real... Because, again, this is mask, very masculine. Uh, uh, fuck you up shit. So, yeah. You know, so... So it's, it's, it's this. Here we go. Can we do both sides? <coughs> Normally, traditionally... Normally and traditionally, they usually, in the jungle, they start from the left nostril. You know, they consider that more um, feminine and going in from that place first and then dealing with the right side. Polarity stuff. But for me, I've always been a person, never really a traditionalist. I feel like go with whatever feels your way, what's comfortable for you. So right one always calls me. So that's, that's what comes with me. So, yeah. <clears throat> so I'm going to start off with some um, some tonation with this singing bowl here. This is a quartz crystal bowl that I got at this wonderful uh, drum place in Somerville. <coughs> Excuse me. Exactly what it does to get all out. Huh? Exactly what it's doing. Cleaning you out right now. Yeah, and whoever wants some... As we go around, you know, we'll have time where people can experience that if they want. 
vibrations in. Feel it working on your chakras and the work field, your new spot. Future reference, don't try to do the rock first. It's <laughs> a singing mode. You might still be in that zone. Like, hold on, where is it at? Is it still in my hand? My name is Brother Dooley, um, for those who might be meeting me for the first time. And um, it's a name that um, my great-grandmother gave me, a nickname. Um, my real name is Abdul. And um, that na nickname stuck with me, and I made it an acronym, actually. And the acronym stands for Divine Universal Loving Intelligence. And uh, then an another name was given to me was the Beantown Ghetto Shaman. And I made an acronym for ghetto because a lot of people, <laughs> when they look at certain words, sometimes they have a negative connotation to it or a negative connection to it. So uh, I, fl I flipped the word ghetto and, I, and I, I made an acronym out of it. And it said, I had, for me, it means gifted hearts eternally towards total oneness. Gifted hearts equals to total oneness. All right? Um, I'm from Boston. Actually, I'm from the Roxbury area. And um, for those who are not from Boston or don't know a history of Boston, really here, um, you know, uh, that's the inner city of Boston, you know? And Boston, where I, the time I was growing up, was a different place than how a lot of people see Boston today. Um, the time and the era where I grew up was a lot of gang violence, a lot of drugs. Um, I have a couple of my comrades here that uh, that grew up with me, and um, I came from a very spiritual home, you know, a full of artists. You know, my father. He's a jazz musician, and he played, um, actually got the chance to play with the famous jazz musician, uh, Farrell Saunders, once, and um, also met Miles Davis, met Dizzy Gillespie before, before and stuff. And uh, so my father taught me very young, from a young age, uh, the power of sound. He also taught me from a very young age, mysticism, and, um, and how there's much more to the human being than most of us are aware. You know, I was taught that very young. Um, I was taught yoga, tai chi, micro, um, microbiotics, um, you know, all kinds of things growing up. And traditionally, where I'm, I'm from and the environment I grew up, that would seem very odd, 
you know, because I would walk out my house and I lived between two warring projects, you know, and um, coming from such a very spiritual, loving home and then leaving out of my confines, my, my, my safety, and then learning very at a very young age that my environment sometimes wasn't very safe. I learned that really around really age 11, really. Uh, and I realized that my grandmother gave me uh, a winter hat to wear. And I didn't know that it was a gang uh, hat. You know, it was, had a gang type of symbol. It was a football hat, but I didn't know the particular gangs at that time. And um, <clears throat> I remember this, 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 these, these older teenagers, they came and they asked, hey, you down with so-and-so, whatever? And I'm like, what? What's going on? I'm, I'm just going about to go to my after-school program, you know? And they, they pulled the, the hat over me and beat the crap out of me. And I had to run for my life, you know? And I remember uh, my grandmother always say, hey, never talk to strangers or anything like that. But it was a man riding and he seen the whole thing. And I jumped in the car. And, you know, I was just running for my life. And I didn't care if it was a stranger or not. And just tears were coming down my face. And he says, are you all right? And I was like, you know, I just, can you just drop me off near Dudley Station? And since we're talking about trauma, that was very traumatic for me. Because I remember overnight, um, part of me became very hard. And I vowed to myself that I was never going to be a victim of any violence. If anything, I would be the first person to lay hands on someone. No one's going to lay it on me. So through, from age 12 on, I've seen a lot of things. You know, I've been in a company of people who have killed people. You know, I've been in a company of people who, you know, prostituted women and all kinds of things. And I feel that the universe allowed me to see all these things to get a broader view of life, you know, not to be so much judgmental, but just to see that there's all types of ways people live. You know, I had a friend of mine and I'll never forget this day. You know, I don't, I'm not naming any names because I want to keep people's, you know, information, you know, personal, you know. But this friend of mine grew up with me and I never knew he was a very angry man, young man, you know, and he was a he was a leader of one of these gangs near my area. And one day I'm walking out the house and I see one of my friends. He's running. And he's like, hey, what's going on? You know, what I mean? he's like, nothing, dude, I got to go, you know. And then uh, he runs past me. And next second, I see this other friend of mine. He's running. He's a real short guy, this guy. He's running down the street with a 357 Magnum, one of them big, dirty, hairy joints. And uh, he's running after my other friend. But they're from two different warring projects. And I never forgot how awkward of a situation that was for me because they were both my friends. And I didn't know what to do at that point, you know. But it would be a lot of these recurring type of themes going on. And I had a client the other day. I do a lot of things, by the way. I'm a certified massage therapist. And I do Reiki healing and all kinds of different things I'm, I'm into. And uh, I had a client the other day who's he's from China. And uh, we was talking about jazz music because he goes to Berkeley School of Music and he plays the sax. 
So I was like, yeah, my father used to play the sax, you know, and we was just comparing notes about music. And he was talking about his love for black culture, you know, and the con- how much Afro-Americans contributed, not to just music, but just a lot of things within American history. And um, and I told him, I was like, yes, yeah, you know, there's a lot. I was like, I love history. And there's a lot in regards to my people's history here. And I told him, I was like, one of my aunts, she was a Black Panther. And um, what was interesting is that when we talk about what happened to our community, Black people percent and what's going on right now and why people are talking about things like Black Lives Matter or seeing things like rant social media with all these cops be shooting down Black men and women. And you ask yourself, how did we get here? And how... And all this dealing with trauma. How did we get to this point? But when I was talking to this 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 man, this client, I was like, this, a lot of these things were perpetrated um, um, on a level that was just orchestrated in a way that it was purposely done to destabilize many black homes, communities, different things of that nature. Um, when I say that, I gave him a reference to this guy named Freeway Ricky Ross, who was a man. It's a, it's, you could look on Netflix, see a documentary about this man. <laughs> but he was the, one of the main drug dealers in Los Angeles who was pushing all this crack cocaine throughout American ghettos. And he, he shows when you do some research, research around it, you see that the CIA was directly involved in bringing that into the community. So when when people when I when I speak to people and I say and I think of the Black Panther movement, when I think of SNCC, when I think of all these movements that happened which were to empower black people economically, spiritually, politically, all kinds of things. There was a systematic approach to your own government to say that we're going to squash this. When crack cocaine came into our neighborhoods, it destroyed it. It destroyed so many lives. And you had a lot of kids selling these, these things. Like I said, one of my friends, I was running down the street with the 357 Magnum. I realized who he was and why, how angry he was through crack addiction. He was a crack baby, you know? And one day when I came from school and I realized that he, he allowed me to come see his small little apartment where he was at, it was chaos. You know, we skipped school, we came there, and his mo- mother was cracked out. Shitty diapers everywhere, his brothers and sisters and shitty diapers, total mess, total chaos. And then that's when I got it. I was like, okay, I see. I got it. I was like, that's why you're so angry. That's why you're uh, ready to to explode at any moment that you can actually kill somebody right now. And they went in, it wouldn't phase you. So um, we have to be, as a people, we have to be very more compassionate in how we approach people. My father, he was an HIV counselor. He dealt with gang providers at Whittier Street Health Center. He did that for many years, and then he got burnt out from seeing all the people that he was working with. One day working with this youth, next next week he's going to their funeral. So eventually he burnt him out. 
But my father used to say all the time, you have to approach people like like you're holding a, uh, something very fragile because everyone has a background. Everyone has something that, some form of trauma. Now, what I'm talking about might be, for many people, the extreme sense of trauma, drugs, violence, gangs, discrimination, police violence. But <clears throat> what I've learned over the years, especially doing this healing type of work, everyone has trauma. I don't care if you're black, white, yellow, Puerto Rican, Dominican. I don't give a fuck what you would Purple, you name it, alien. Everybody has some motherfucking trauma. And the thing is that um, it's dangerous when you have people walk around and pretend like there's nothing wrong with them. And, I, and yes, there's, there's people that are generally happy, good going people. But living in this type of world, you can't help but just turn on the news and, 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 and get a sense of trauma, you know? So we all are going through a sense of trauma. And how do we deal with that? How do we make ourselves more wholesome people? Now, <clears throat> I've been on many different spiritual paths myself, you know, and I give a lot of credit to my parents. Um, but recently, the shamanic path, the teaching plant, the teaching fungi path for me has been something that personally I've, from my own testimony, from my own work, I, I've seen that it's what you call um, shadow work, what we deem as shadow work or what we deem as um, dealing with the dark night of your soul, you know? And for me, being able to say, oh, I want to become a more spiritual person. I want to become a more psychologically more stable person. Doing that type of work is essential. Peace. How you doing, sister? Um, when we when we deal with the earliest forms of psychology, you're talking about the shaman path, the teaching plan, the medicine man, medicine woman path. There are there are earliest on 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 human <coughs> record. They're the earliest psychologists. All right. Even if we want to research Freud or call you know Jung or whatever you know, and if we want to talk about the collective unconsciousness and all that. All that was rooted in shamanism. All right. So the shamans, as you know, they they were the healers. They are the, the medicine men and women of the community. They're the people that are able to go beyond the veil and go in between spirit world, physical world. All right. They have many roles, but they're the masters of trance. They're, they're the masters of trance. And be it if they're using the drum, be it if they're using dance, be it if they're using teaching plants or fungi, there's so many ways they approach it. My wife over there, she she's a master of dance. She'll go to the dance floor and literally go into a state of ecstasy and come into this place of... Some people actually said they've seen her actually shapeshift before, you know, with with this dance. And that's another art that we would do, you know. There's a wonderful book. I think the name of the book was uh, Path of the Priestess. I forgot the name of the author. But it's an excellent book because it talks about this woman's spiritual journey. And she talks about how she was dealing with all these different teachers and 
how they all would teach her these different things. But she came when she journeyed into India and she was learning from this woman who this elder who uh, dealt with classical Indian dance. First, one thing I found was interesting in this book is she said as a Western woman, this woman was um, Jewish. She said as a European Western woman, she said she felt very, she felt ashamed because she said that she felt she got out of touch of her, her divine feminine nature. And this older woman remind her of that, you know, and again, all those faces of the, the goddess, this woman, older woman would do these dances and she would literally transform shapeshift in front of this woman's eyes, you know, cause she would get into it. She would channel this energy. So at one point she would be doing a dance dedicated to maybe Kali and she would tap into this very ferocious, a very strong type of energy. And at that point, the woman that was uh, learning this dance from her, she would literally look like this little woman, look like she would grow all of a sudden. And she's like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? And then there would be other moments where she would channel the sensuality of, of the goddess. You know what I mean? So next thing you know, she'd be in this, and she, her appearance would seem younger. She would seem juicy and sensual. And this is something that this woman felt like she lost in the Western world. She's like, wow, I felt like as a woman here in the Western world that I could not express that confidence, that ferociousness. And, and, and if I did, it would be that I'm trying to be like a man or trying to compete with a man. Then it would be, then it would be these other aspects that she would discover about herself like, wow, my sensuality, it seems like I'm being robbed of that as a woman in this world because if I express that all of a sudden, now I'm being labeled as a whore or I'm acting to whatever, you know? So to me, I just, I just thought about that book and how it was a big impact on me at reading that book because, um, I come in, in this incarnation during this time as a man, but I had the privilege to see many of my past lives. And it was, there's past lives where I came in the incarnation of a woman. I remember one day I had a flashback. And I was like, I was carrying my massage table on my head, going to a client, right? I had a flashback. I seen myself in this woman's body carrying a big vase on my head. <coughs> and I was sexy as hell during that lifetime. I had to twitch and everything. I was like, oh, goddamn, I was bad as shit. And now I'm like, I must have had motherfuckers falling over. You know what I mean? So this is deep, you know? Even the, even the thing of race, when you start to go deeper and within to your spiritual practice, there's so much trauma around race and race relationships. And we'll talk a little bit about that even from the last ayahuasca ceremony I was on. There were certain subtle things that came up for a lot of the people of color that was there that reported back to me. Certain things that they felt at certain points uncomfortable. And I had to ask myself, I'm like, if there's a few, the majority of people that I took with me, they, they're all saying the same thing. We have to look at this. What's that about? You know? But again, we'll, we'll talk about that too. Epic genetics. We'll talk about ancestral trauma and how that plays a role into race, you know? But there was times where I seen past lives and I was different races. You know, I, I had a, uh, the, uh, I was fortunate to see certain past lives. Like, oh, wow. That, that lifetime I was an Asian man. I was teaching martial arts during that time. 
oh, wow, it's a Native American man in that lifetime. And I was doing this particular work because you have a tendency as your soul develops to continue the work that you're doing. It doesn't stop. You know, you might be in another birthday suit, but it doesn't stop that essence of who you are, you know. So um, speaking of reincarnation, I had a great woman. She was my first Reiki teacher. Her name is Janaki, wonderful woman. And um, she told me about a reincarnation experience she had um, with her next door neighbor, you know. And she said she was growing up, and when she was growing up, her neighbor used to always love to play pirates with her, all right? So in her thing was her neighbor's like, okay, and now you're going to walk the plank again. And I mean, it was this whole thing that she would love to play with, and this was their whole little thing. Now, as she became an older adult and she started to get into the New Age movement and learning how to meditate and all these other things, she got deep within one of her spiritual experiences where she seen one of her past lives. And during that past life, she was a very wealthy woman who got kidnapped by these pirates. And when she had this experience, when she went back to this lifetime, she realized during that lifetime when she got kidnapped, she got raped by this man. She got taken advantage by this pirate. And after they, he did whatever he did to her, he had her walk the plank. And that's how she died. Now, when she had this experience, she realized the connection of the pirate who made her walk the plank and raped her and all that was her neighbor during this lifetime. So sometimes we, sometimes we don't know these connections. And sometimes your friends, your family members, your colleagues, your schoolmates, sometimes you're doing lifetimes with each other. Sometimes they, some people call that soul agreements. And of course, when we think of the Western world and Western science, a lot of these things I'm saying today, they'll say, oh, this is pseudoscience. How can you prove that duly? Well, a lot of these things I can't prove. I'll just tell you the truth. A lot of these things you have to have your own personal experience with. I think that's the difference between when we look at world religions or organized religions. And not to put any person that's in religions down because it serves for some people. It helps a lot of people out. I know a lot of people that went to prison became maybe Muslim, Christian, and it really helped them out. Helped them out from going out there and doing some crazy shit. So, you know, for me, I think it's a stepping stone. And a lot of it deals with morality. But then when you go beyond that stepping stone, and then when you go into the mystic schools, because every organized religion had its own form of mysticism, you know? Christians, when you deal with the Essenes, you know, you deal with the, the Gnostic teachings. When you deal with the Islam, you go deeper within the mystic tradition. You deal with the Sufis. You know, even if you deal with the, the Jewish faith, you deal with the Kabbalah. So there's many mystic traditions and all these mystic traditions also had dealt with teaching plants and fungi. 
All of them. There's a great man. His name is Baba Kalindi Yee. He's a great mentor to me in many ways. He He's, just sent you a message. He did? Yeah, uh, just like one minute ago. Peace. 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 Good man. He's a master of African martial arts. And he's one of the main people that really had me increase my dosage with psilocybin mushrooms. Because this man does 40 grams and beyond. We're talking about when Terrence McKenna used to talk about five grams, and that was considered the heroic dose, right? This man does 40 grams and beyond. Okay? So... It was him that inspired me to increase my dosage because I've been really doing a lot of shamanic work, medicine work with mushrooms for over 10 years. And it started really here at Northeastern, actually. <laughs> I'm a graduate of Northeastern, actually. Um, I was studying theater and art here. And um, I had a good friend of mine that said, hey, Dooley. It's like it's, it was my birthday. And he's like, you should try these these magic mushrooms. And I was like, uh, I don't know about that. I was like, you know, black folk in the hood, all we do is just drink a little beer and smoke a little weed. That's it. I don't, we don't know. We don't dibble dabble that other shit. I don't know what y'all, <laughs> but you know, so, but she convinced me, you know, I thought about it. I checked in with myself and I said, hmm, <coughs> you know, I do eat a lot of mushrooms in my spaghetti, you know, and you know, I, I do like to throw <laughs> mushrooms on my pizza. You know what I mean? So it shouldn't be that bad. You know what I mean? So that was the start for me. And I, I've done a lot of healing work, a lot of different things that have happened with me with the with the mushroom. I hold the mushroom very dear to my heart. But um, I, got, I lost my thought for a minute. I went down the road with the mushroom. You see what the mushrooms do? <laughs> no, but um, yeah, it. I increased my dosage with, with this man, with, with, and he inspired me to go with this. And with my, with my increase with the, the psilocybin mushroom, I noticed that um, there's great, great healing that you could do with this. When you go deeper with this, this is when you start to pierce the veil of dimensions. That's where you could literally go for thousands of years in a matter of four to six, eight hours. You know, so um, through my my journeys with the mushroom, I allowed myself to be open to the past life experiences, to contacting, contacting celestial beings and all that. But these things can't happen unless a person does it themselves. That's where I was going with this was saying that a person has to have their own experience. You know, this can't be something that's fed spoon to you. You know, just believe or read this book and, you know, have faith. I mean, I'm not going to down faith for these things. But when you would go into these religious systems, when they would go and when you deal with the secret societies within them, you would understand that they all did this behind closed doors. All right. And Baba Kalindi highlighted that, especially for me. When he came to Boston and he had a slideshow, it, the proof was in the pudding right there. Because what he showed me was that there was a secret society across the world, especially when it came to architects and masons, because the people that build these religious structures, 
They built it in the structures for the initiates to see it right there in front of you. So you could enter the Catholic Church and see that there's a mushroom right in the entrance. Or you would go and see a fresco painting or see this type of thing. And the artist would, if you had the eye to see, would understand that this, when we deal with human history, it's a psychedelic history. All right. When even when you talk about Terrence McKenna, he, he talks about the stone ape theory. We have to understand and give credit to how much these teaching plants and fungi played a big role even in our evolution. So when we deal with the religious systems, we understand that, you know, the Pope himself, the attire that the religious attire they wear, this whole mimicking a mushroom. And when you look at it, I'm like, what the hell? You know what I mean? Even our, 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 our holidays and our, our festive, um, reli religious holidays, when we deal with Christmas, they're talking about a, uh, a shaman there, you know, Santa Claus the shaman. You know, so the more I got deep into this, I'm like, wow, this is immersed all into our history and our culture. So we have a legacy. And it's not one group of people or one person that has a hold on it, but it's 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 throughout the world. You know, we, if you go to Greece, yeah, the 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 they had, you know, the uh the um what they call them, the oracles of uh, Delphi, and, 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 and them using psychedelics there at that time, you know? So, you know, you look in India, you use Soma, and, and, and dealing with the ancient Vedic systems. So we understand that it was part of our history all around the world. And when I finally got a chance to drink the so-called, quote-unquote, Egyptian ayahuasca, you know what I mean? I realized that this was something the Sufis would drink all the time which was a combination of Syrian root and acacia root. A great medicine, by the way, you know? So every culture had its own medicine. And especially, it's very important, especially during this time, I believe, for the sacred teachings and fungi. Because we're dealing with fast technology. We're dealing with, we're going in a whole different ball game right now, you know, because those who are keeping up with futurists like Elon Musk, for instance, you know, he's he's you got billionaires that are saying, I want to die on Mars, you know, and some people it's hard to wrap your mind around it and to think like that and to think why we're actually in an era where people are doing space travel. We're talking about George Jetson's shit, you know what I mean? Shit that we would see as children growing up that it's right in front of our faces right now. So. <clears throat> I come from the school of thought that my people talk about the star elders, the star beings. I come from the school of thought where indigenous people might, might not say it's a Darwin theory type of thing, but say that we came from the stars. I was taught this at 12, you know, with that African people come People of color come from the stars that our origins didn't even start here on planet Earth. And for me at that time, that was like way over the head. I'm like, what? Y'all motherfuckers watch too much fucking sci fi around here. You know what I mean? Too much goddamn Star Trek. You know what I mean? No, you know, but it took a 20 some year study for me to see like, wow, there is something to this. 
who are these people called the Dogon tribe of West Africa, of Mali? And why is it that they have, to a T, an accurate depiction of our solar system in their caves, way before the invention of a telescope? How is it that they knew in them caves have the rings of Saturn around them? How did they know about Sirius B? Way before the telescope. So there's mysteries with our planet. And you'll be a fool, a very ignorant person to think that you have the whole answer here to this, how we, how all this got started. You'll be a fool. Oh, I just got it all that. Oh, just Big Bang Theory. We just some random leaves, some shit happened, and you know what I mean? And we're all here. No, no, my friends, no. And when you start to go deeper within the wisdom of these indigenous people, they talk about the cedars of planets. I forget what constellation. I remember I just came across some information. It was in a, a star group of people that came from one particular constellation. I forgot that they believe they were responsible for seeding this planet with the ayahuasca and the iboga. Pleiades? Not Pleiades. It was another one. But Pleiades, the Palladians, they have a big role in our evolution here as well. You know? And the more we look into galactic history, the more we'll see things like the Great Orion Wars of the past and all these type of things. And when you look and do your studies and see like the ancient Vedic scriptures, you'll talk. It was one of my friends. I remember years ago here at Northeastern. He's from India. I think he's from Bombay. His name was, um, I haven't talked to him. Yes. Uh, Hari, brother Hari. And, uh, Hari was like, yeah, in our culture, we talked about our flying machines way back when thousands of years ago. He's like, we call them the Vamanas. I was like, you serious, Hari? And this is way before I heard all this. I was like, what? You talk about flying machines back then. <coughs> and he's like, yeah. And he said, we, even our scriptures, we talk about nuclear war. We had nuclear war back then. And if you do your research, you'll see different places in India where the, the sand is very radio, um, radioactive. So there's a lot of things that happened with us. A lot of things that happened with us. And the Hopi talk about it. And the Zulus talked about it. There's a great resource, this guy named Credo Mutua. He's one of the last living Zulu shamans that, kept, that has kept the oral history of our, our beginnings. And he talks about how the Africans were on planet Mars before we came here. Now, there's a lot of so-called conspiracy theorists that says the so-called face on Mars. There's, there's so-called pictures from NASA that there's a face that looked like there's a face on Mars that looks like a pharaoh's face. There's so-called the pyramids that they have on Mars. And then there's talks about even ancient pyramids and structures on the moon. Now, you have a lot of people, especially in the Disclosure Project, like people like Stephen Greer and other experts out there who are trying their best to bring this information out and says that NASA is their job to clear all that up when they, these pictures come. But when you have billionaires, cut this off here, I'm sorry. When you have billionaires like Elon Musk and other people that are privatizing 
uh, trips to, to Mars in different places, I think we're going to have a different story on, you know, you're going to see a lot of different photos that are going to come out that, and it just, I just say people be prepared because we're going to have to have a di different way of teaching our children about history. And galactic history will eventually have to be part of the curriculum. So I'm so glad that we just went there. Yes. And I'm hoping at some point we can break into some small groups and do some discussion talking about history yep. here too and about trauma and identity and how those all play in together. Do you want to like, I just, like take us into that? Listen, I'm going to take y'all into that. Go I had to go around the world for a second. <laughs> And go out in space for a second to bring y'all there. <laughs> this is a method to my madness here. You know what I mean? But we're going to go into the trauma now. All right? First and foremost, um, and, and this is why I feel the galactic history is important, because memories, 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 unconscious memories. There was times where I would go on shaman journeys and I would have ancient memories. And I don't know where these memories came from. I, I had one experience where I was like I was looking through someone's eyes in the front seat of a flying vehicle. I was out of space. And it looked like I was witnessing firsthand something that looked like goddamn Star Wars. All right. So. That's the reason why I even brought up galactic history, even on that level. There's something this is for y'all to do your own research, but look up the Orion Wars. And if we if we talk about trauma and if we talk about DNA, there's something that they call epigenetic DNA, which is generational DNA, the memories of your ancestors. So if there's certain traumas that have happened to people, not even yourself, Maybe even in your ancestry, there's certain things that could come out of you, even during these shamanic journeys. And you sometimes you might not understand where it's coming from. But again, this healing goes so way back, so far back. All right. I had a friend of mine. She deals with the iboga medicine. All right. She comes from the tradition of the Bitwi tradition in Gabon in Africa. All right. On one of her journeys, and I'll never forget this, and this, again, trauma. And it was Graham Hancock, the book Supernatural, that had me open me up to Iboga. That's the first time I heard about it through that book. And that's when I realized that could be used for not only addiction, but they considered it to be the time travel plan. All right. This woman took the Iboga, she was in a ceremony, she took the Iboga, and she had an ancient memory, and she couldn't determine if it was her ancestors or if it was actually her own memory. But she seen her, she seen these Africans running through the sugarcane field. And they were running because they were trying to escape slavery. They were running through this field and they was trying to escape. All right? Now, for me, when I heard that, that just blew my, my mind. <laughs> all right. Because, again, all of us have our own different trauma. All right. Individually, collectively, culturally, nationally. 
And that's why one purpose of what I do, a lot of things I do, is really try to organize a lot of people of color here in Boston, in the Boston area. He's so cute. Yeah, that's my little son there. Yeah, yeah. His name is Kismet, by the way. Yeah. But um, when it comes when it comes down, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? How you doing, Papas? When it comes down to um, ancestral trauma, that's why for me it was a big importance to have people of color to do this type of work because there's a lot of trauma surrounding our uh, the history of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. Um, this conversation came up even with the, the situation of what happens when you have a mixed group of people in a ceremony. Sometimes when we deal with this new age community and what goes on in the new age community, a lot of times, let's just face it. I used to work at, um, this metaphysical bookstore in the, in, in the Somerville area. It was called Unicorn Books. It closed down, but it was a beautiful place. And I used to get frustrated, literally, because they would have all these great speakers coming, authors coming, great teachings happening, but there would be no people of color there. All right. And, a, and what frustrated me more a bit is that some of the people that were teaching some of this great information were people of color who actually created these types of things. All right. So it frustrated. Now, um, what happens when we do come together? The last uh, ayahuasca ceremony I, I went on, there was some tension that certain people that I came with, people of color that I came with, that they said in regard to some of the Europeans that were there. And I said, good. Why? Because healing is never fucking comfortable. Sometimes you're going to go through the, you're going to have to go through the uh, uh, uh to get to the goodness. Sometimes, like, what happens is that sometimes in these, in the New Age communities, a lot of times, even if it's the yoga communities or whatever, a lot of Europeans are used to being amongst themselves. So, so I, sometimes some of the black people that have gone to these ceremonies, they feel it in the air. They say, wow, you know, I'm not used to having this type of race of people here. And you, and how do we respond to that? Because if we're talking about a mixed group dealing with even an ayahuasca ceremony, San Pedro ceremony, whatever ceremony, is it first welcoming? Is my brother, is are my white brothers and sisters, are you allowing environment that's safe, welcoming, and for, for people of color to do this work with you? There was a assistant that was there that many people that was there, they, we just felt like, this woman was very not welcoming at all. And so we have to understand why are these things coming up? And if they are coming up, how are we going to address that? Because if we look at things of even, say, for instance, ayahuasca, right? There was a couple of people that came to the ceremony. I had about three or four people that said their ancestors came to them, their deceased relatives, all right? I had one woman, her mother who passed away, came to her like, well, I'm right here talking to you, all right? So what happens when you enter a room where you might have an ancestor that might have been racist as shit, 
and that motherfucker might pop into the room. How does that energy affect the 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 ceremony with people of color then? How does these things because I'll come I'll come I'll come right out to it. Just because someone dies doesn't mean that they're enlightened. Alright? I used to do a lot of work with Tibetan Buddhist lamas. I had one teacher of mine, his name is Garchin Rinpoche. He's in this film called uh, The Himalayan Masters or something. You'll see it on, uh, if you type it up on YouTube, you'll see him talking about the ancient technique called the Tumo practice, which is the inner heat practice. All right? Now, the Lamas used to tell me all the time, the worst thing a person could have is an untimely death. Because they say the person sometimes when they die, they get stuck in a place of limbo. They get stuck into the spirit world that looks the fourth dimension that sometimes look identical to where we're at right now. So so sometimes just because someone's dead doesn't mean they're fucking enlightened. They, somebody's an asshole. They could be, still be a dead asshole roaming around. All right. So when you're when you're in this ceremony, sometimes you might have ancestors that were deceased that might be hanging around you, might be in a room. And that ancestor that might be in a room might have been a Ku Klux Klan motherfucker. Who knows? So how does that on a spiritual level, how does that affect the circle? You know? And even if there's certain things that we come up into a world where we deal with racism, segregation, all these other things, if someone, I, I, I've, and when I used to go to school here, I used to talk, I have, I always have all kinds of friends. But I encountered a lot of white people when, even when I was going to school here, that just never been around black folk. Just, they didn't have to be. They lived in a community where they were sectioned off from people of color. So I encountered a lot of people that they brought their preference on what black people were through living, looking at television. Or maybe seeing the rap videos. Or seeing some other type of shit like that. And I remember one time I was in the dorm and I had a good friend of mine and he was rapping. So he, he loved hip hop and he was rapping and he used the N word within the song. And it, he didn't mean anything. He just loved the song. I had a woman, a black um, sister that was there. She cussed him out. He said, she said, don't you dare use that type of language in front of me. I don't care how much you like hip hop or not. That for me, I don't even use that word and that's affecting me. So we have to understand on a traumatic level. And, and the race thing for me has always been a big thing because that's a wound that's still open. Okay? When I even look at my father, my father went down to a lot of my family from down south. I remember my father, I'll never forget this. He was um about four, four or five years old and he wanted to drink some water. It was a white fountain at that time. He didn't, my father didn't experience all that because he grew up in Boston. So when he went down there and he said, my, my grandmother, mommy, mommy, I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? Said no. And I remember he was stomping his feet going off and he eventually, we had, he had to travel miles and miles until we eventually got to this, this, this farm area where some of my relatives were and the quality of the water there was very terrible and it got my father terribly sick drinking from the well there. But that's, that was a trauma for my father. I remember that stuck in his head. And at such a young age, be it five or six, whatever age he was, he knew something was wrong there. 
he knew that, hey, that little kid that was there, uh, that white little kid that was there a couple of seconds before me, he drank that water. Why can't I drink that water? My neighbor, Mr. Um, Jones, down the street, he had to cut his cousin down because his cousin got hanged one time. And I remember he, him and his family had to come. I don't know what the young man did. But he had to cut him down. And some people look at even slavery, Jim Crow, all these type of redlining, all these type of things. And they think, oh, that was so long ago. And we have to understand those implications, <laughs> those type of things that happen to people here in America. Those things are still affecting people today. You know, that's why I seen um, on the Internet the other day. I forgot what rev, 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 what reservation it was. But this particular tribe is dealing with all type of levels of alcoholism. So when you deal with a group of people that deal with their culture being snatched away from them, their their spiritual system and all these other things, that's a that's a trauma all across the board. So we have to understand things like iboga, things like ayahuasca. These type of things actually allows a person to be able to feel what love actually feels again. Do you mind if I tell you? All right. This man was going through a lot of stuff recently. And he was at a place in his life where he felt like he did not know what love or what the feeling of love was anymore. I gave him some psilocybin mushrooms for the first time and he was able, he was getting showered with love. He went into this place where he was able to experience this level of bliss. There's a part of me that understands like Siddhartha Buddha, Gautama Buddha or Shakyamuni Buddha says, this realm here is full of suffering and other things, but we understand there's ways of that we can heal it and get out from that. I think for me personally, the first step on an individual level is setting your intention. A person might not even know that they have certain trauma or, or, or type of things that are bothering them. Because sometimes we go through trauma so much that we sweep it under the rug <coughs> because it hurts so much that we just don't want to deal with it. My trauma started from my mother. My mother was considered to be schizophrenic. And I remember me and my mother was smoking a joint one day in the car. And my mother told me something that I never knew. She told me one day, she said, I tried to kill y'all. I tried to kill you and your sisters. Now, when things happen to you so traumatically, it could happen to you through the level of survival where you could block out certain memories or you could block out certain things for your own personal survival. All right? The only thing that I know where the courts got involved is when my sister's foot was burnt. That's when the courts got involved and said, okay, she's not fit to have us. She has to go. And we'll have another time where we could talk about schizophrenia, mental illness, and the connection to shamanism. It's very deep. But my mother's thing was that 
she said she didn't want us to deal with the demons that she was dealing with. And I swear to God, I this is for another time, but I went on a shaman journey with my mother one time and I literally seen the demon that was carrying on her for a long time. So shit gets real. All right. But trauma could be so deep that we can bury it. There was a woman at an ayahuasca experience about two ayahuasca ceremonies ago. Where we had to work with for this woman almost three hours. Because she was reliving certain trauma. And there was people in the circle that were judging her. They felt like, oh, she's just ruining the ceremony. Why don't she just pull her shit together? You know, this is just obnoxious right now. That's like in and out of ceremony. People yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Get a little more compassion in your heart. Because at that moment, spirit allowed me to see what was going on with her. My eye, my inner eye was open. And I was shown that she got sexually abused by her father. And sometimes we don't even trust our own inner awakening. Because maybe I, at that moment, I was like, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe that's just something of thought. I don't know. Maybe. But as soon as I had that message come to me, she starts verbalizing. Saying these things about her father and stuff. So to me, that was a very, that was a very deep thing to witness. Because again, a lot of these things, a lot, when you deal with ayahuasca, for instance, or if you deal with other psychedelics or what have you, a, one, a, one big part of them is the purging aspect. All right. Even uh, it, uh, frog medicine, combo, different things. And I mean, the purging aspect of this, of this medicine, even before you start, some people, they have celestial experience. Ah, I was with the angels and shit. Good for y'all. But a lot of that before you some, a lot of times before you start getting to all that other stuff, a lot of it is just learning how to let first let your trauma go. Letting, letting the baggage go. And a lot, and it's hard because again, we live in a world where we're taught to be strong all the time, especially men. Let's just face it. Men are we're, like we're the most in this country, the most out of tune with our emotions. It's ridiculous. And we're dying because of that. From day one, we're taught, yo, you're being a sissy, you know, stop crying, whatever. And what's up with that? The whole John Wayne type of machismo shit, that shit got to get thrown out the fucking window because it's killing men. I remember I had the opportunity to go to this conference. It was called the Men's Wisdom Council, and it was in Roe, Massachusetts. I got a scholarship to go there. I was about 16 at the time. And it was just an opportunity for me to get out the hood and get some free fucking food. You know what I mean? I was like, shit, some organic shit. I was like, where? I could do that with y'all. So let me get some, make it out the city, get some fresh air. And I'm sitting there, I'm the youngest person there, I'm the only person of color there, and mostly everybody that there uh, with attending that conference was all European white men, 40 and up. The oldest guy was probably in his 80s. 
And what struck me, what really, and I never forgot this. I was like, wow, and this is deep. Because a lot of these guys that came there, they were financially set. Some of them were doctors, some of them were lawyers. By society's standards, they accomplished the American dream. But when they allowed me to see what was going on behind doors in their life, I felt very sorry for them. Because the money and the, and the credentials and the little uh, letters behind their name didn't mean shit to what I was seeing that day. Most of these men were very out of touch with their, uh, with their emotions. They did not know how to communicate with their, their wives. They did not know how to communicate with their children. They were workaholics. And what happened is that when we even the subject of sexuality, when that came up, their first introduction to sexuality, Playboy penthouse, looking at bare-breasted women in National Geographic. So this is our society. And our society teaches us from little boys, from little ones, since day one. May beat my chest. Mm, you know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's times where that's, we love that. As men, we love that. There's times where we got beat our chest and just let that shit out. But then there's moments where you have to learn as men to be vulnerable as well and learn how to cry and learn to know when something hurts to learn how to talk about it. Because you have people like um, Carolyn Miss, for instance, great author, MD, who started seeing auric fields around people and started prescribing certain, started seeing auric fields and, and started seeing disease in people's auric field months before it even manifested. And in the book, she makes a connection between the way people think and disease. So for many men in that book, she talks about prostate cancer and how that's a very direct connection to men not being connected to their emotional body, their self or their feminine side. So we have a lot to work to do. Let's do it. You know what I mean? We got a lot to work to do. <laughs> and the yoga, the meditation, the ethogens, all that, use all of them. Use all those things at your disposal. Because some people, even in the psychedelic communities, it becomes dogmatic like anything else. Because if it was meant for you to eat a mushroom or take some ayahuasca, the whole fucking world should have been enlightened by now. But it's your approach to it, your respect to it, your, into, your intentions to it. How are you approaching this medicine? And how, what are the lessons that you learn from your journeys? And how do you bring those lessons back to your everyday life? Because if you don't do that, it becomes just a fad, just like any fucking thing else. Oh, are we going to go to the next ayahuasca ceremony? You know what I mean? Oh, you know, you know, and... That's nothing but in fad. That's nothing but this is the end thing to do. And if you're approaching it from that shit, you're totally disrespecting the legacy and what it's actually here to do for your fucking ass. So, yes, I'm sorry. 
I get a little emotional about these things. So yes, and I'm, I'm fucking Pisces, by the way. But yes, so, yes, yeah. I was actually hoping we could talk. I'm glad you brought up like being male and how that makes you like susceptible to a certain type of trauma and how that plays out. You know, even not recognizing that you've been traumatized by that aspect of your identity and what's yes. expected of it. Yes, yes. I was thinking that like it might be good for us to all come away from this with some ideas of how we can work through trauma and make our community safer from trauma mm. um, that maybe we could come up with some like solutions together in mm. like maybe some small discussion groups. I kind of like took some notes while you were talking of things we might want to discuss. And I think that's when I'd like to add, like how has your identity or your demographic impacted you in like, have you been like resilient to trauma because of like, you know, maybe being raised as a woman, you were told it was okay to have emotions like, yeah. and talking yeah. about how to use our identities for that. Yeah. I don't know. I was also thinking we could talk about creating safe and resilient communities so that we are less people are traumatized to begin with. Yes. yes. Um, and then you also mentioned like ceremony spaces and how to, it's very important to make sure they're safe for everybody, even though we can't actually guarantee that it's not going to be really you hard can. to work. You those can. things out. I, I mean, I don't mean to cut you off right now, but like you just last thing you said, even though it was a little uncomfortable for some people in the beginning and like, mm, what was that energy about? At the end of the ceremony, everybody's fucking holding hands and kumbaya because <laughs> I don't care, black, white, yellow, whatever. Again, when you're on these journeys together, you can't help but witness other people's stuff. And like, it's like y'all running a, th a marathon together. So you're at the end of the marathon, you can't help but like, that was something else. We did it. We did it. Woo. You know what I mean? So I think sometimes it might be uncomfortable, but. <laughs> When you're dealing with the teaching of plants and fun fungi, it's not going to be a comfortable experience. I don't know anyone that jumps into this thing, be it mushrooms, ayahuasca, Campbell, or whatever, and say, oh, yes, we're about to get busy. Let me, I don't care who you are. I don't care even if you're the most super psycho not out there. You're going to have a level of nervousness, a level of whatever, because we deal with a society that we want to be control freaks. I want to control everything. Everything I control. Everything I'm controlling. And then when you deal with psychedelics, teaching plants or uh, fungi, you learn something called trust. You learn something called trust, and you start to learn to be able to say, "Hmm, within this trust, I'm going to learn to let go, and, and and allow the medicine to do its own thing," because it's different than, for instance, someone going to studying with a guru, a sage, mystic, rabbi, or whatever who's guiding you along. This teaching plant, these fungi and stuff, they're a teacher within themselves. So you're going into school, they know more about your ass than you fucking even know about yourself. So it's uncovering certain things about you. Because we have to understand, even the, the, the mushrooms, for instance, they already shown that it can travel on asteroids. It's been, we've learned that literally these mushroom spores go from planet to planet to enlighten motherfuckers on different planets. So, we have to learn about trust and learn about how mom, mother nature herself, nature herself is very intelligent, has her own intelligence and has her own gifts for you. As human beings, we have to learn how to trust her and be open to her teachings. You know what I mean? A lot of trust. I cannot uh, emphasize that more, more than enough. You know, that's, that's the thing right there. You know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, big trust, you know? 
Should we take like a bio break? People can bathroom. There's watermelon chips, salsa. There's water, and then maybe we can come back together and do some small discussion groups on different questions. I'm gonna. I wrote some questions up on the board. Um, if you have a question you'd like to see discussed, like maybe you go up to the board and put it down, and we can figure out a way when everyone gets back to break off into that. Do you have any last words? Uh, um, Feel free to not if you don't have any last words. That's okay because you can also speak. When yeah, we get back. Um, I, I, I just, I just, I think we're just at a renaissance right now. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. Oh, 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 can't do that. No, 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 kiss me. Yeah. By the way, speaking of electricity, check out Black Lightning. I've been watching that on Netflix. That's my joint right there. I'm just really telling everybody to check that out. But um, no, I think we're at a, re a renaissance, man. We're at a really great time in history where we have science supporting these ethogens, these, these, these psychedelics. So I think this is a very exciting time because before when we think of like, you know, the hippie movement, my father, by the way, he went to Woodstock. He's seen Jimi Hendrix play live and all that. And he, 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 he told me from his experience how wonderful of a movement and awakening that was. So now we're coming back. There's these cycles that humanity goes through. And we're at this cycle again. And now, you know, from the studies with Timothy, Larry, Ramdas, and all these other greats that came before us, now we're at, at it again. And now we have the research now for John Hopkins University, New York State, all these people saying like, yes, there's benefit to it. You know, we can, you know, reboot our brains. We can deal with depression, anxiety, addiction. So I'm, I'm just telling people, you know, let's get the stigma off of it. Let's get the stereotype off of it. Let's not look at it from the old approach of saying, oh, you know, you're a hippie, you're a stoner, hippie, trippy, all these type of things. Now it's time for us to educate our family members, our colleagues, our friends, and let them know this is future medicine. You know what I mean? The, the, uh, we're, we're just playing the catch-up game right now. All right? So that's that's why I, how I look at it right now. I'm very excited because 10, 15 years, 20 years into the future, you're going to see this as a common thing, using MD, MDMA and stuff and all these things for psychotherapy and all this stuff. It'll be a household name, just like people are opened up to uh, acupuncture and other things now in the hospitals. So this is a great thing to look at, and it's exciting times. And we're the forerunners on it. So y'all should be excited about this, too that you're the ones really at the forefront right now doing this work, you know? So, yeah. All right. Yes, man. Thanks for tuning in. To find more, you can check us out at thepsychologist.com or find us on Facebook. Stay conscious, everyone.